You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting the yes and. So today we welcome Adam Alter back to the podcast. Adam is a professor of marketing and the Stansky Teaching Excellence Faculty Fellow at New York University's Stern School of Business. Uh, we spoke to Adam previously about his book, Irresistible, and his latest book is called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck when it matters most. You're going to love this podcast. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Adam Alter, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Kelly. Good to be back. I got to be honest, any book that delves into the science of the 80s Norwegian synth pop band AHA, footballer Lionel Messi apparently loafing on the pitch, and Miles Davis disappearing from a jam session has me hooked. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious, how much of this book was science that discovered stories or stories that discovered the science? Oh, man, I love that as a first question for a podcast. That's such an excellent question because I think this is now the third book I've, I've written, and they all involve science, but I think they've also increasingly involved narrative. And right. um, often I'll come across stories. It's been a while since I wrote my last book. It's been six years. So during that time, I've collected hundreds and hundreds of stories and anecdotes that I think make really interesting points. And I've stored them in a single document. And when I came to writing this book, I asked myself whether any of those stories might fit the theme. And I had a sense of what the theme and what the science were telling me. And I wanted to find some stories that illustrated the point. And so you're exactly right. These stories, the three that you mentioned, among others, are to me just fascinating because just in and of themselves, they tell of people doing things that you might not expect them to do that lead to interesting results. But it just turns out that they also happen to tell us something about what it means to be stuck and how to get unstuck. So I don't know if it's a, it's a sort of chicken and egg issue, but yeah, yeah the stories the stories came first. Although I've been thinking about the science behind this this question for twenty years, so mm -hmm. I I'm, I think it's it's a, a there's a bit of a mesh there. And I suspect, uh, like almost all of our guests, that there's an element of me search and you deciding to do this book. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, COVID, I think for everyone was a period of being stuck. And so I wrote the proposal for the book, although I'd been thinking about these concepts for, for a long time. I wrote the proposal at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone in at least one respect was stuck. And so, yes, I, I felt that. And that ended up being, this was a form of therapy for me trying to understand how to get unstuck. Yeah. 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 And, and my work in improvisation, of course, is, is all about that. It's sort of, it, it's the given that human beings are going to go to the self-judgment place. And, and, and in part, I think, and you mentioned this in the book that we're sort of fed 
through all our media, through film, through television, even through music, these, you know, individual success stories over time that then, you know, the message we, we can take is that, oh, we're unremarkable or we didn't get the lightning bolt. And, and n- none of that actually ends up tending to be true uh, when it comes to how people succeed. I mean, you know, Steve, Steve Carell was was here about nine years before he became an overnight success. Right. Um, and, and and I think he he was uh, toiling in television for like maybe another seven or eight years before he became an overnight success. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think humans are interested in the extreme. That's what really motivates us. And, and the narratives that interest us are the narratives that depart from what is run-of-the-mill, pedestrian, ordinary, expected. And it just so happens that success stories, which tend to be at the very margins of human capacity, are extreme by by their nature that you know you focus on a, an actor who is incredibly talented and succeeded wildly and you focus on the actor's successes because that's the stuff that makes that actor different from the rest of us we all get stuck we all fail we all try things that don't work out and so the stories that are interesting that float to the top of the surface end up being the stories of success and so what gets buried is that mountain of of less successful anecdotes And that's problematic because since we all experience so much stuckness, if we come to view the world through this lens that suggests that everyone else is succeeding but us, because that's the stuff that ends up making its way to us, that's not very good for confidence and not very good for our coping strategies and coping skills when we do face being stuck. Uh, So you actually start the book with a story about an actress uh, who I think uh, uh, her name was Brian Desaulniers. Yeah, Brianne de Saunier. Yeah, she was uh, French Canadian. And so she, she grew up with that name that she ended up changing later on, which I assume uh, you're, you're, you were, you were getting to. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about her. Yeah. So she ended up uh, changing her name to Brie Larson. She ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Actress for Room, her, her film. Um, but uh, what was really interesting about Brie Larson for me was that she was unusually transparent about her struggles. Mm. So I wanted to begin the book with this this case study where what we see from the outside is her tremendous successes. She's won lots of awards. She has a, a ton of blockbuster roles under her belt. But what she did a few years ago was she released a two-part YouTube video, a sort of diary that that lists every single audition that didn't go to plan, every single cast call that didn't go to plan. And she she details them all. And she talks about what the emotional experience was like, how difficult it was for her, how when she was a child trying to make it into the acting world, it was a really difficult time for her. She unpacks all of this and spends quite a lot of time, like 15, 20 minutes across these two videos, telling us of her many failures. And you don't often see that. That's the part that's usually hidden. And there's something really liberating about hearing from people who have succeeded wildly and hearing that before that, there was this mountain. These these little steps had to be made on top of this mountain of of what they consider themselves to to be failures. And so I, I found that story really disarming. And then I talk about many many others that are I, are similar in all sorts of different walks of life, in entrepreneurship and other areas. Um, and if you dig deeply enough, you'll find them. It's just that they're generally hidden. They're harder to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that we teach here, uh, and it's both a sort of um, an improv tenant, but it's also a, a construction of comedy tenant, which is we uh, we say start in the middle. 
So uh, we, we don't want you to do too much exposition at a time. We don't want you going too far. You, you want to start with some sort of level of action so that the audience is sort of clue in, you know, and you can do that uh, it, uh, very easy uh, over time, but it takes practice because it is not reflexive for human beings. Um, and you note in the book um, that people tend to get stuck in the middle. So I want I want to tease that out a little bit because this is I I, I I didn't think that we do it because people got stuck, but maybe we do. So talk a bit about the science behind this. Yeah, this is a science of extended goal pursuit when you're striving for something that takes a little bit of time that often has multiple stages to it. And and the theory is when you just begin something. Let's say your goal is to lose a certain amount of weight or to train for a marathon or to create a masterpiece of say it's art and you're trying to do a painting and it's got 10 different components. When you first start, you're energized, you're engaged, you're interested in what you're doing. And so things tend to start off pretty well. And you you start with a, a good bit of wind behind your back. And what happens over time is there there's this lull in the middle where things slow down a little bit. It's like the, the example I use to try to illustrate this is imagine that you're sailing between the US and, and uh, England there's a big period of time when you're in the middle of the ocean and your progress is hard to monitor. You don't really have a sense of moving forward and that's demotivating. Mm. And so in these extended goals, there's that lull in the middle. And then as you approach your goal, you can start to see it taking shape. And so you get re-energized. But if for, for very long extended goals, that middle period can be very long. It can be a big chunk of the whole, the whole goal experience. And if you don't re-motivate and get back into doing things the way they should be done, it's possible that you'll never actually reach the end. And so it's really, really important to figure out how you can take this lull, this natural lull that happens in the middle and, and turn it into a period where you actually do find momentum again. So this is interesting. I, um, uh, just riffing. Um, so we don't necessarily do long form narrative at Second City. We do short sketches. And I think this idea of starting in the middle works for that because if you just have a piece that's going to be anywhere from like, 45 seconds to eh, maybe on the long end, like eight minutes, something like that. You can start in the middle and get there. I don't think that works for everything um, uh, uh, creatively, uh, but I think in terms of this sort of small ensemble, six people co-creating things together in front of an audience, it's sort of very effective. And you do talk in this chapter about essentially gaming the system, the way you can get around um, uh, the middle. Uh, and that could be at anything from like your exercise regimen, right, to, yeah. to an innovation. Yeah, it's interesting. I think what happens is, and I've seen this over, over the years as an academic, I watch hundreds of talks. You know, every year we're exposed to hundreds of talks about research. And what tends to happen is every talk has three parts. There's the intro where you're explaining why you're doing what you're doing. You're giving the background. The middle part, that's the really interesting part. This is where you show the new data. This is what's new and fresh and different about what I'm doing. And then there's the wrap up at the end. And I think everyone spends too long on the first and the last of those. The beginning, yeah. they spend forever saying, well, here's why I'm here. And let me tell you about my background. Uh -huh. And here are some other things I've done. And honestly, it's boring. I want to get to the good stuff as early as possible because you're going to lose me otherwise. And then at the end, when we're done with the good stuff, the meat in the middle, I don't want to spend half an hour wrapping up. I want those beginning and end parts to be as brief as possible because the meat is where the good stuff lies. And so I think is what I tell my students as well, that when you're writing talks, the best talk you can give is the one that has almost no intro and almost no conclusion. It's really just bang, here we are. You know, you capture me immediately and let's go from there. You can't, you can't do that in an extreme way as an academic, you have to set the stage. But I think in the world of improv, in the world of acting, in the world of anything where you're, you're sharing a narrative, the human tendency is to try to 
to go back to, and this is how I was, this is where I was yeah, born. Yeah. And let me tell you, you know, and so we spend much too long on that stuff. That's why people like Michael Lewis are such incredible writers. Cause they just like, they find a way to get into it. And it is the thing that they're talking about as opposed to a Malcolm Gladwell, who's maybe making up the thing that they're <laughs> talking about. Uh, so we, we were talking before he signed on, you were one of our first guests on, on the podcast. And, um, I had a moment uh, reading your book when I was reflecting back to 49-year-old Kelly Leonard, who decided to quit his job as the producer of Second City, which was my dream job, with having nothing, you know, going forward, just sort of being like, I got there's for some, I got to change. I don't know why. It was very fraught. And the podcast became part of this journey of, I guess, the first part of my career, which is all improv on stage, working with all these incredible talent. And this latter part is improv off stage, working mostly with academics around how can we create embodied exercises that can illustrate the phenomenon that we're discovering in, in, in these worlds. Um, and you, I also shared this with um, people in my uh, sort of office suite who also had things going on when they were, say, 29 or 39. And the nine enders, there's, there's maybe a reason for this. Yeah, this is some work I did with a colleague of mine, Hal Hirschfield at UCLA, and we. It really began as as I, I like the term you used, me search. I was yeah. twenty nine when I signed up to run my first marathon, and actually it turns out to be many years later my only marathon. But as a twenty nine year old, I felt like I wanted to somehow demonstrate in a very big, bold way that I was young and fresh, and things in, that were happening were interesting and I wanted to do something different. And this is, it turns out a very common thing that what happens as we approach the end of a decade when our age ends in a nine is we do a little audit of our lives. And and that can lead to one of two broad outcomes. One outcome is to say, I'm happy with where things are and I want to keep doing more of what I'm doing. But very often there'll be areas of your life where you say, well, you know, my life is full of meaning. I like aspects of it, but there are other things that I'd like to to do maybe a little bit differently. And so we see these signatures of of really interesting behaviors that pop up around that nine ending age, 29, 39, 49, 59, where people make big moves. They uh, they are likely to sign up for, for a marathon, for example, or they're likely, if they are already marathon runners, to run especially fast at that age. It's like they're trying a little bit harder. They're a little more motivated. You see some really positive effects and you see some negative effects as well. You see a rise in extramarital affairs, for example. Mm-hmm. So these are these are periods of in our lives where we tend to make what seem to be big decisions because we audit our lives a little bit more thoughtfully as we see time passing, as it's clear that we're moving into a new decade. Um, and so, you know, there, there are good aspects to that. There are bad aspects to that. But I think the big idea is that there are certain extraneous or external forces that push us to move forward or to think differently. And one of them just happens to be the passage of time and the way we count. So this feels important in the sense that I don't care how smart you are, how much you've read, how much you know, when when it comes to a, a nine, we might be nudged in a certain direction. When it comes to our given name, that might be a nudge in a certain direction, like dentists who are named Dennis or, or whatever. You even have this thing about when people are asked to pick a random number from one to 10, a third of them come back and say seven. I mean, like, so I, I would think, I mean, you know, you could take this to extreme and be like just depressed that we're that sort of, you know, influenced by things that don't necessarily, that aren't real <laughs> right um or you can understand them and pause maybe and be like okay where where am i why why am i doing why am i thinking what i'm thinking why am i doing what i'm doing 
It's, it's yeah. so, it feels sobering to understand this stuff. I think so too. I mean, that's really, that's one of the threads that's gone through all three of my books. The first one was a big compendium of all these forces that shape us mm. that we may not anticipate. That was Drunk Tank Pink. Then Irresistible was about the rise of screens, which felt to me when I was writing this book about 10 years ago, like the single biggest force that was shaping our lives at the time. Totally. And then this new book, um, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, is about how forces beyond us push us to change and adapt and we get stuck and how do we get unstuck and find breakthroughs at the end of that so this theme that runs through a lot of my research and my thinking is 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 exactly that is it's grappling with the fact that as humans we are a much more predictable than we think we are Mm -hmm. but b we're also to some extent at the mercy of outside forces and we don't always recognize that but recognizing it is very empowering because it it means that you're much better equipped to deal with those forces uh, so you have a piece of science in the book that actually we worked on at Second City. Um, uh, Brian Lucas uh, did the study here, and we've had Lauren Nurgren on the podcast to talk about his uh, his other book. And I think he, he mentions the creative cliff illusion in, inside that. So talk to us about you, you sort of discovering this piece of science and how it relates inside the book. Yeah, I talked to Brian about the work, and I, I think it's just a fantastic set of studies. And uh, what, what they basically did was they wanted to investigate our our intuitions about creativity and about creative and new and original ideas and when those ideas would would crop up over a period of time. And when you ask people, their their default intuition is to say that the best ideas will be early on. You know, that's when things feel easiest, when ideas tumble out of your head. And that's actually untrue. What they found in a lot of their research is that the best ideas, whether you're solving a puzzle or coming up with creative uses for a paperclip or creating punchlines for jokes, it doesn't matter what context we're talking about. The, the good stuff happens either consistently throughout or very often in their studies at the end. And the, and the reason for that, I think, makes a lot of sense, which is that the obvious stuff, the stuff that feels easy, that tumbles out first is tumbling out first because it's obvious. It's not particularly creative. It's the same thing that everyone else is thinking. And so it feels like it comes to you easily, which is a sign that it's fluent and that and that's a good thing. But it's that it's grappling with the complexity of trying to come up with the next set of ideas that makes them so strong. And so what this means is people often stop too soon in these pursuits mm-hmm. for creative ideas. They, they, let's say five ideas tumble out and then the sixth one doesn't come all that easily. And they say, well, this is getting hard. I guess I'm out of ideas. But what's actually happening at that inflection point is that's when the good stuff, the magic is about to begin. And so what we interpret as difficulty equals bad should be reinterpreted as difficulty equals the good stuff's about to come. And so that the key insight here is that there is no cliff over which creative ideas fall. Mm-hmm. What instead happens is that it takes a while for the good stuff to arrive. I don't know if you saw the other study that we did with Eilat Fishbach and Caitlin Woolley, which was we actually did this in, in classes and half the students were uh, just told to do this exercise. And the other half were prompted before they went in that it would going to feel uncomfortable. That's okay. And overwhelmingly, the people who were given that little prompt uh, stayed at it longer and and were more effective in the task. And it was like, that is the tiniest kind of intervention, uh, but it had impact. Yeah, it's huge. I, I, humans engage in in thinking. Obviously, they think about all sorts of things, but there's also this layer above all the thoughts we have known as metacognition. Metacognition is that is how it feels to be thinking about this thing that I'm thinking about. And a lot of that is about ease or difficulty. How easily are these ideas coming to me? How hard is this process? 
you know, learning a language can be very, very difficult. And if you aren't prepared for that, you might stop too soon. But eventually what happens is you develop fluency and that's when the payoff arrives. Now, the same thing is true about creativity and about this uh, study you mentioned, um, Ayelet and Caitlin. What basically happens in the, in these contexts is we experience difficulty. And in most areas of life, when it's hard to think about something, it means you're not getting it or you've got a lot more hard work to do or you're you're not grappling whatever it is you need to be grappling with. Or you're not grasping whatever you need to be grappling with. And mm-hmm. and so usually our instinct is to say, I'll find something else to do that's a little bit easier. I, I don't have unlimited resources here. But yes, you can arm people with the idea that this is just part of the process, that it's valuable and you've got to keep going as as they did in that study. And that that usually is enough to overcome something like this illusion of the creative cliff. And so it's very important for people to know this, that Difficulty is a sign of good things, not bad things. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Uh, I would be um, remiss in terms of being a theater person and leaving a gun on the wall and not firing it in the second act if I didn't start. And let's talk about AHA. Let's start with them. Okay. Uh, how, 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 I actually did not know the the story of this song slash video, which we all know, huge hit, take on maybe a huge hit in the 80s. Um, but it's it again, that was not like an overnight success. No, it wasn't. So Take On Me, one of the biggest hits in the 80s, and really, I think, an emblem of 80s music for its video, which is very, very famous. The music video is very famous, but also for the song itself, which is incredibly catchy. It's mm-hmm. one of the greatest melodies, I think, ever written for pop music. And I I had assumed that good songs like that, songs that were so unassailably good, it was so clear that they were brilliantly written, that the melody was just an, an incredible hit, that they somehow arrived fully formed. And if they didn't, then they didn't succeed. But actually, the story of that song is a long one. It was circuitous. It took years. The band struggled with it. At one point, they they didn't know what to name it. At another point, they decided they were never going to pursue it again and that it was done and they were going to throw it into the wastebasket. And it, it took a, a realignment of personnel, bringing on new people. It took finding new agents in the United States. It took three versions of the video. It took so many different iterations for the version that we know and love today to emerge that I thought it was a perfect emblem of this this idea of, of persevering, of pushing through where you think you should you should stop, because even the band themselves thought they were done. And uh, they were wrong. They pushed a little harder. They had a little bit of outside help from someone who said, I think you guys need to try again. I think we're close, but not quite there. And success arrived. Yeah. So it was like a decade in in in, in the making, which is just amazing. All right. So I don't want to assume because of your accent that you're a football slash soccer fan, but is that is that a game you enjoy? Uh, it is. Uh, it is. I love I love uh, football. It is my yeah. number one sport. As do I. I am a Tottenham Hotspur fan. I'm um, a Liverpool fan, so we'll, okay, we'll have to agree to disagree. We'll, we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> I believe my team is right now doing a little bit better than yours, but yeah. uh, still, still not in the top three. Uh, so Messi, uh, uh, I would say greatest player in, in, in the world right now, just, just won the World Cup. But I think for an untrained eye, you're probably looking at this and I go, why is he walking around? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. So Messi, I've I've always found Messi fascinating for his his ability as a soccer player. I think he's incredibly talented just as a technician. The way he he plays the ball, the way he passes, the way he dribbles, the way he shoots, all of that's very interesting. But there's another layer that I think is hidden from most people, which is that he's also tremendously anxious. He's well known for being anxious before games, big games, and even modest games. And for someone to be that talented, to be considered perhaps the greatest player of the game of all time, of the most played game the world knows, 
to also be very anxious is, I think, surprising. And so the question is, how has he overcome that? And one of the things he does is he spends the first few minutes of every game ambling around the middle of the pitch, kind of watching everyone else play. He's almost a spectator, but on the field. And so he spends about two, three, four minutes looking at the way everyone else is moving, trying to see if there are any weaknesses in the opposition, making sure that his own team is as cohesive as he'd like it to be. You just try to figure out if there's anything that's idiosyncratic about that particular day, anything that's unusual or strange that he can then capitalize on in the remaining, say, 85 minutes of the game. And this has made him extremely successful as a, as a tactician, as someone who understands the way the game evolves and emerges. And he's talked about this. Well, my favorite statistic to describe this approach is that if you look at different players, you can plot which minutes of the game they score, they score their goals in. There are very few players who've scored a a goal in every minute of the game from 1 to 90. Messi has scored in every minute from 3 to 90, but in those first two minutes, because he effectively isn't playing the game, he's never scored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you how he has used this approach of sacrificing that initial two minutes for the good of the remaining 88 or so and, and to great effect. Yeah, I mean his his sort of knowledge of space on the pitch is a th- it, it, it's beautiful. I, I I just don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like that because it is so slow. It's not like Pelé didn't do that, and some of the others in terms of knowing where to go. But literally, it, it it's like it's no one no one plays like that. And and then the other thing is like he doesn't um he doesn't use his left foot, right? Is that the other thing that this guy does? Oh, uh, he he uses he does he does use both feet, I think, but he's. It is fascinating when you see these cases of people who are, at least what they do physically, departs from the way other people yeah, play. Yeah. And so here, it's not just that he's better in every respect. It's that you would imagine that to be the best player, you need to be the fastest, constantly moving. He is very quick when he gets his feet on, at, at, to the ball. Mm-hmm. But but the fact that he he's actively not moving around in the beginning, all those those kinds of paradoxes you see where people are better for not doing more or they're better for doing less. I find those fascinating. And there are stories like that all throughout the book of, of these weird paradoxes, almost Zen paradoxes, like to move forward, you must stop is basically his philosophy. And I think that's, that's when you're stuck and your first instinct is just to do, do, do to act immediately. The idea that slowing down, pausing, taking a beat, figuring out your surroundings is is very empowering. Uh, So I'm a giant, Jazz fan. I had uh, I had the opportunity to see Miles Davis play in Carcassonne, France once live and it was amazing. Uh, wow. And I actually, I made an assumption in terms of the stories that we'd be told because we know a lot of these stories around, uh, especially in, in, in my work in improvisation about working through, like, you know, a mistake is an opportunity and, and like, and he's got his own version of that. But that's not the story you tell. It's a whole other thing that starts with a, a very young Herbie Hancock. I mean, he had to be, was he like 15 or 16 when he first auditioned for Miles? He was very young. Yeah, that's right. So he was young and he was extremely nervous because everyone was scared of Miles. Miles was known for having a bit of a temper. He was mm-hmm. as talented as he was. He knew exactly what he was looking for from everyone. And he could certainly be surprised occasionally, but but he usually knew what the end goal was. And if you weren't moving towards that end goal and you weren't of like mind, that was problematic for Miles. And so if you were a young person trying to imagine what that end goal looked like, that was uh, that was a lot of load to be placing on you as you were also trying to play your best music. So Herbie Hancock was invited by Miles to audition with with the band with Miles' band at Miles' house, and uh, he he talks about 
it's this fantastic interview where he talks about what this experience was like and how terrifying it was to be in this little room with Miles and all these other tremendous musicians. And he he said he talks about how very soon after they start playing, Miles kind of threw his his trumpet down on the the couch, the sofa, and went upstairs, and it was gone for the next two days. They didn't see him. Mm-hmm. And Herbie was convinced he'd failed. You know, what's worse than auditioning for someone when after a few minutes they leave the room and never return? But what he talks about is that um, at the end of that that several-day period of, of playing with all these other musicians minus Miles, Miles comes down the stairs and says to him, I like what I've been hearing. He was listening through the intercom. I like what I've been hearing and I'd like you to join us. You've got to join the band. And Herbie talks about how Miles, who was known for being intense and terrifying in these contexts, knew when to dial things down a little bit, knew when to take the pressure off, and knew that he would he would only be able to liberate a young, inexperienced musician who was very talented to play his best music if he took that the temperature down a little bit. And so that's what Miles did so successfully. Even someone like Miles, who was known for being so intense. Part of what made him so talented was he knew when, when to dial that intensity down. And so that the story I tell there is really in the service of this idea of finding ways, especially when you're a manager of a team, but also for yourself to do what Miles did for Herbie, liberating him by, by dialing things down. And I, I just love the story. And when you watch Herbie Hancock tell that story, it's, uh, you can see he kind of goes, he transports himself back mm-hmm. to that time. And it's really electric stuff. So that connects to, we had Lighty Klotz on, on the podcast to talk about Subtract, and you mentioned his work. In, in I the do. Book. I remember reading that and being like, I never think this way. I am always adding. I am <laughs> always, in, 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 you know, the nature of our work is often, you know, divergent thinking, but always, always in a sense building and, and rarely subtracting, like taking yourself out or what happens if we remove this. And that becomes also an idea of like, well, okay, if you're, if you're stuck, um, you know, <laughs> maybe rather than adding to it's like what can i remove yeah i've been using this approach it's i call it a friction audit but it's very similar to lighty's idea of subtracting or removing and the friction audit is an approach i've been using for i would say on and off for 10 years working with nonprofits charitable mm-hmm. organizations big corporations small startups all sorts of different organizations and the basic idea with a friction audit is that you you have two two tools at your disposal you can either add and you can make things better you can if you're if you're a company and you have a product you can sweeten the deal by making the product better in some way or you can remove the bad stuff you can mm-hmm. take the friction and and strip it away out of any process and and I found the friction order which uses the same approach that Lighty talks about of subtracting to be incredibly a counterintuitive and be valuable the return on investment is very high and I'll I'll give you just one example yeah I worked with a series of shopping centers um, of malls and they were trying to figure out why parents who were coming to the mall would often shop with their little kids. And the kid would eventually get to the point where it was like, it's, we're done here. And the kid would freak out, start screaming, and the parent would leave often with a cart of things that he or she had planned to buy, but, but abandoning the cart without buying. So the question was, if I've come with my kids, it's obviously a bit of an, an outing, an undertaking. I want to buy something. Why would I leave it there? And is there a way to overcome this problem? And what we discovered was that instead of adding all this stuff to kind of sweeten the deal and you know, encouraging people to buy, the key is just to remove the big friction point, which is that the child determines when the shopping trip ends. So what we what we did was in a number of these shopping malls, we spent very little money, only a couple of thousand dollars in many cases, to build a little um, jungle gym or 
playground area. And so this acts as a kind of way space. So what happens is parents know that's there. It actually makes that shopping center or that mall very attractive because they know their kids are going to enjoy that. And so they take their kids there, their kids play for a little bit in the middle of the shopping trip, and then they're able to complete the trip. And so for a thou- couple of thousand dollars, you end up having hundreds of carts of purchases that would have been abandoned actually completed. And so from a business perspective, that's a really attractive return on investment. You spend very little and you get a lot back. Hmm. That's fascinating. Cause yeah, you, you figured out what the middle point is and where that, that problem, you know, happens. And they, they, and they're not just doing this for children. They also do it for men, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. The man cave idea. This is great. This is, uh, this is an idea that's used in shopping malls in Shanghai. And what, the, what they've done is they've created these man caves for, for, you know, stereotypically women will go shopping with their husbands or their boyfriends and the, their reluctant passengers in this whole experience. And so what happens in these man caves is there are video game consoles and beer kegs and, you know, all sorts of stuff that apparently men really like. And as a result, the women get to shop for much longer. So you, you have the startup cost of setting up the man cave, but then after that, it pays back a hundred times over in the ability for these women to keep shopping more and more and more, buying more and completing all their shopping trips. Okay, so um, we have mutual friend Bob Sutton, who also writes and researches about friction. So that's something that's interesting. And yesterday, I think it was his, he liked one of your tweets, which then I went on and, and read because um, this is an argument that ha- is happening at Second City. So I am doing this for my team <laughs> as well as for <laughs> others. Uh, I think it was a decade or so ago, you wrote a piece about the power of the open office, this idea of coll- uh, uh, collaborative collisions, all, all those sort of things. And you've changed your mind? I have, yeah. So I, I wrote this piece. It was 2013, and it was around the time I was I was uh, promoting my first book, Drunk Tank Pink. And I was I was really interested in this question of how offices should be set up to maximize benefits. And I was I was especially focused on the idea that one valuable thing that doesn't happen in that many offices is cross collaboration or unexpected collaboration. Usually, things go the way you you expect they will. Having been an academic in a large department, I noticed that I was spending all my time with the same few people, and that's fine, but it's not going to unlock any new opportunities. But when you actually look at some of the greatest ideas that have come up in all sorts of contexts, a lot of them are serendipitous when two people who are from different areas come together. Mm -hmm. And so my argument in this piece was the open office is good because it forces you to collide in unexpected ways with other people. I still think that's true. But what I forgot when I was writing that article was what it feels like in all those other moments when you're just trying to get your work done to be in this huge room, totally open, without any privacy, without any of the things that we know as humans we really need, space, to some extent, quiet, and and really personal private space is really important. And maybe that's not possible in every work workspace, but if you're going to create a very big open plan office and have people migrating from desk to desk and so on over time... You are depriving them of something that as humans, they really need and that all of us need. And, and so I, a, a decade later, I've come after reading a lot of other research as well to believe that that original article was wrong. As, as convinced as I was by it at the time, I don't believe open offices are on balance a good thing now. Yeah. And, and it, it might be less about the office and more about time in terms of times where we come together. I mean, we know this, so we're creating, we create a show at Second City over like a 10, 12 week period. And uh, often that cast is co-creating together uh, on stage in front of audiences, but rehearsals during the day, 
um, are often sort of like, oh, I'm going to send the two of you out. Can you just script up the improv as best you can remember it for the, the scene? And they go to a quiet place, an office or somewhere else where they need to do that that kind of work. And that is different work than the idea of the sort of collision stuff that happens. So I, I, I just suspect that we we need all these different kinds of spaces to um, maximize what human beings are are good at and recognize what they're not good at. I totally agree. I mean, I think with an open office space, you're forcing people to be in the presence of others all the time. Whereas in an office where you have some some personal space, even if it's like a cubicle that walls you off, yeah, you still are going to spend a lot of time out in the open with other people. You'll still have meetings in big groups or you'll have to walk to the bathroom or whatever. You know, you're going to be out and about. It's that you don't want to force people to constantly be in public. I think that's a lot for a lot of people to handle. And so I, I totally agree with you. There are certainly times when we should be in these sort of big public spaces with other people. And there are times when when people should be sent off to work off maybe in pairs or alone in, in other rooms where they have a bit of space. So the, the question is how you do that. I, I, I think it's very, very hard to do that when when you're um, when you're in an open plan situation 24-7 or constantly when you're at the office. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, you shared with us a yes and story, which is often how we end the podcast before. So returning guests, we 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 have updated the literature a bit here, and we ask for a thank you because story, a, a time in your life where you kind of didn't feel like you could yes and um, or research that that applies to this, and and the idea around thank you because is having some gratitude and and finding some specifics that uh, that can connect uh, one human being to another human being tend to move us past the kinds of op- obstacles that seem you know like we're not going to get over them uh, initially. Yeah, it's it's funny that the the. the the real heart of this book for me was something that I discovered about 15 years ago, which was doing some research on on people from different cultures and how they anticipate change. And what I found was that in East Asian cultures, in Japan, Korea, China in particular, people are very ready and willing to anticipate change. You mm-hmm. ask them if you, in these studies, we said to them, you know, it's been sunny for the last three days, what's going to happen tomorrow? And they were like, oh, it's going to rain. And we said, the stock market's been doing really well the last few days, what's going to happen? They say it's going to go badly and vice versa. So they anticipate change in all sorts of different directions, which is consistent with with Taoism and with the yin-yang and so on. In the West, if you tell people it's been sunny for three days, they're very surprised when it rains the next day. They're like, oh, I thought it was going to be sunny again. Or the stock market's been doing so well, I should throw all my money into the stock market instead of anticipating a downturn. And what this does for people in the West is it makes them very badly prepared to grapple with change. And so this, for me, this... uh I, I hope I'm getting the prompt right, but I think yeah. um, there's there's a huge amount of value in just being open to the idea that change will come. It's inevitable. And when it does, not being blindsided sets you apart from the vast majority of the population. And so that that for me has been an incredibly valuable idea um, personally and, and I think as a sort of educational tool with my students and when I talk to other people that um, instead of anticipating that things are going to stay the same, you should anticipate change. And if you're happy with where things are and they don't change, that's a that's the nice surprise because change is going to happen. In our work, we talk about replacing blame with curiosity. So I think this idea of cultivating a curious mindset mm-hmm. allows you potentially to see the things that you wouldn't see before because we're so pattern-oriented. And as we know, innovations mean that you're upsetting a pattern, you're deviating from a herd, you're doing all the sort of, you know, non-conformist behavior that is 
not how we operate on a on a minute by minute day by day level as as human beings. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's that that experimental mindset that that's what kids do, right? They they are yes. curious about absolutely everything. They don't stop asking questions. We lose that as adults. We start to assume that things are the way they are for a very good reason. But then you occasionally will come across adults who don't do that, who are experimentalists by nature, who question everything. And they, they're so deep. They're almost childlike in the way they communicate sometimes. But what they do is they unlock these incredible wells of value that to other people are hidden. And I think that's that experimental approach, that turning, turning this fear of change into a sort of curiosity where you're actually actively seeking it out is, is a tremendously valuable mindset for approaching the world. Yeah, that's Danny Kahneman. That's someone who is just like to, to you know the few interactions I've had are just so funny because he's just completely open and not sh- he's not shut off at all. And, exactly. and in fact, he seeks out. <laughs> I like I, I got sent chapters on his last book to give notes on. I'm like, why are you? Why me? Like, I'm not someone to do this. And and there <laughs> I did. And I and I had problems with a chapter, and that chapter did not end up in the book. So. Who knows? Exactly. Uh, you know, openness can never hurt you. That form of openness, as long as you you can uh, you can withstand potential criticism, it's it's a brilliant thing to do. Uh, the book is called Anatomy of a Breakthrough: How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. Adam Alter, thanks so much for coming back on the pod. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Getting the SEN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.